I'm Francis Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. M-S-W Media. Season four of How We Win is here. For the past four years, we've been making history in critical elections all over the country. And last year, we made history again by expanding our majority in the Senate, beating election-denying Republicans in crucial state house races, and fighting back a non-existent red wave. But the MAGA Republicans who plotted and pardoned the attempted overthrow of our government now control the House thanks to gerrymandered maps and repressive anti-voter laws. And the chaotic spectacle we've already seen shows us just how far they will go to seize power, dismantle our government, and take away our freedoms. So the official podcast of The Persistence is back with season four. There's so much more important work ahead of us to fight for equity, justice, and our very democracy itself. We'll take you behind the lines and inside the rooms where it happens with strategy and inspiration from progressive changemakers all over the country. And we'll dig deep into the weekly news that matters most and what you can do about it with messaging and communications expert, co-founder of Way to Win, and our new co-host, Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona. So join Steve and I every Wednesday for your weekly dose of inspiration, action, and hope. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona. And And this this is is How We Win. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time, is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. Hello and welcome to episode three of Clean Up on Aisle 45. I'm AG and I'm joined as always by Andrew Torres. Hi AG, how are you? Uh, I am well. I'm having a weird day. I got some FOIA information we're going to talk about in a little bit. It's really (laughs) an interesting day because I have some legal questions for you. Surprise legal questions. Those are the best. Yeah. Lawyers love it when you haven't prepped that out and you're like on the spot. 
here answer a couple of things but other than uh well i sent it to my lawyers yeah. as well and and they were like whoa so it's big it's big i i can't wait that was some exceptional teasing there so mm. so other than uh finding your name in government documents how, how have you been i've been good i had a good week i feel oh, like we're starting to get into we're starting to settle into the biden calm a little bit I noticed that I didn't have 97 headlines at the top of the Daily Beans yeah. this morning. It was only about seven <laughs> or eight. So it's, you know, <laughs> it's a little different. Uh, the fire hose is slowing down. Yeah, I noticed that uh, for once when people said, what's the biggest law story? As you know, we were prepping for opening arguments. It was not a Trump story, right? It was the what's going on with, uh, uh, you know, with GameStop and everything. But but mm. I mean... It's been four years since the answer to that question was anything other than, you know, well, what is our criminally insane game show host of a president doing? So, uh, yeah, so I'm with you. So I was fantastic up until prepping for the show and then I got super depressed. So, yeah, and I know why you got depressed, too, because uh, yeah. <laughs> we're going to talk about that in a minute. Um, but I want everyone to make sure I will if you've. Already, if you're listening, you've already found the podcast, so I guess this doesn't make any sense. But <laughs> cleanup is one word when you search for it. Uh, but we had the honor of chatting with the former House counsel for the Democrats during the first impeachment trial, Daniel Goldman. Oh. We'll have that interview for you later <laughs> in the show. I, I might have fangirled a tiny, tiny bit during our interview, but oh, I, you were great. I tried to keep it together. But at the end, I mean, this was literally a... a a dream come true for me. Anyway, please keep going. It was fun. It was it was really uh, good to talk to him. He's just so smart. Uh, He's just so well-spoken. Um, but what I think could be the lead story for this week on Cleanup, Andrew, you and I have been beating the court expansion drum for a long time mm -hmm. now. You specifically called for doubling the federal bench. And uh, I've been talking about expanding the Supreme Court to at least 13 members. Well, out this week from Politico, the Biden administration has moved forward with the creation of a bipartisan commission to study reforms to the Supreme Court and the federal judiciary. Uh, the commission will be housed under the purview of the White House Counsel's Office and uh, filled out with behind-the-scenes help uh, of, from Biden's campaign lawyer, Bob Bauer, who will co-chair the commission. Its specific mandate has yet to be decided. Uh, but in a signal that the commission is indeed moving ahead, some members have already been selected. Um, among those will be Christina Rodriguez. Mm -hmm. uh, she's a professor at Yale Law School, former deputy assistant to attorney general in the Obama Department of Justice. Uh, she'll join Bauer as co-chair. Caroline Fredrickson, a former president of the American Constitution Society, and Jack Goldsmith, a Harvard Law professor and former assistant attorney general in the Bush Department of Justice, will serve on the commission and that's why you're mad. <laughs> yeah, and and I think I should be, right? So mm, yeah. so so let's unpack all of that, okay? Well, oh. let me the Fredrickson appointment I think is the key mm -hmm. because Fredrickson has hinted that she's intellectually supportive of ideas like court expansion. In 2019, she said in an interview with Eric Lesh, who is the executive director of the LGBT Bar Association and founder of Greater New York, she said, quote, I often point out to people who aren't lawyers that the Supreme Court is not defined as nine as a nine person body in the Constitution. And it has changed size many times. So I think she's a kind of a key person. But Goldsmith, um, meanwhile, is likely to frustrate the pros the progressives. Right. Yeah. And for whatever reason, news sources are really downplaying how bad the Goldsmith appointment is. Right. So. 
I, uh, let's talk briefly about everybody else that we know so far. So first, we know that this committee is going to be nine to 15 members. That's what Biden has said. We know four members already. And I guess in in fairness to Joe Biden, let me say that um, I, I'm not overly concerned about Bob Bauer being the uh, the, the other co-chair, right, um, opposite uh, uh, Christina Rodriguez. Um He's a centrist institutionalist type. And yes, in 2018, he wrote an op-ed on why Democrats should not pack the court. Right. Um, but but I'm willing to give him a tiny bit of a mulligan. I went on a nationally televised radio show in 2017 and said Democrats should not pack the court. Right. And and the reason in 2017, 2018 was was really simple. Um, Republicans could have packed the court back then, right? They now, when you say pack the court, can you tell me what you mean? Yeah. Do you mean expand it, or do you just mean appoint judges? Because packing seems like a weird thing to me. You you have a if you you either appoint judges or you expand. Right, right, and and I I think Democrats are sort of deliberately obfuscating, blurring the line on those two things because it enables them to make this argument without explicitly making it, and that is this. Donald Trump very clearly politicized the judiciary to a degree that would have been uh, unconscionable under any other president. Right. It, it, by the second half of Donald Trump's sole term in office, it literally I mean, we call them Justins and Corys over on opening arguments. But literally, like it was if you're 35 and you're a right wing lunatic, I don't care. I want you on the bench. And so Justin Walker went from teaching creative writing at it at, at, at the University of Louisville Law School to being a heartbeat away from the Supreme Court in six months. Right. And 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 this is somebody who, you know, at plenty smart, right, former debate opponent of mine. Right. Um, but but not remotely qualified to have been a lifetime judicial appointee. And he's like 32. And that's just one example. Right. There were tons of these and, and way less qualified. So people who didn't even go to college, probably. Yeah. It, it more. Donald Trump appointees were rated uh, not qualified or qualified uh, by the American Bar Association than any presidential uh, any presidential administration in since the ABA has been rating judicial appointees. And again, I know we don't have QAnon listeners here, but the ABA is a nonpartisan independent body that just assesses the qualifications of candidates. And so, you know, I mean, you had uh, uh, associates. Justin, the, the reason I, I continue to pick on Justin Walker is not just because I, I debated him, but uh, and he was fundamentally dishonest in our debate. Um, but uh, but because he literally spent zero time practicing the law before being crammed onto the Eastern District of Kentucky. And then immediately, like three months, like one opinion, three months later, being elevated to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. Right. Which, again, is the proving grounds for the Supreme Court. Right. Like that. That's Merrick Garland's court, former court now. So uh, to, so to go back to your question. Yes. Right. Democrats have been deliberately combining the idea of packing the courts as meaning just putting your judicial ideologues on the bench with the idea of expanding the bench and, and, and in particular expanding the Supreme Court. 
right? And the idea is to say, okay, the latter is a reasonable solution to the former, which, by the way, it is, right? Because Article Three judges serve for life. They can be impeached. It's happened a dozen times in our nation's history. Uh, but we're not impeaching the Justins and Corys from the bench. They're there. Uh, no matter what you heard people throwing around, uh, Bernie Sanders proposed a, like, rotating them off the Supreme Court. That's not going to happen. Um, it is uh, absolutely not a tenable view uh, of, of of the of, of the article three powers um so so there so we're stuck with uh these these folks and 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 let's be clear donald trump appointed about as many justices in four years as barack obama and george w bush did in eight right he got 54 judges to the to the various circuit courts of appeal three on the supreme court and 174 district court nominees it's bad now i want to ask you just about commissions in general mm-hmm. because there's there's kind of two sides here right one side is like sweet he's putting together a commission to look at court reform and the other side is commissions are where things go to die <laughs> and nothing's going to happen even politico says quote but any major structural reform is going to be a heavy lift several democratic senators have signaled their opposition to these kinds of measures uh chuck schumer senate majority leader says monday he was waiting for biden's commission to decide a path forward on reforms for scotus so uh is is this a is this a commission assembled to appease the people who want court reform, or do you think they might actually get something done? So I I look at this in two ways, right? And 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 I can see both sides. If you have a bipartisan commission that is carefully crafted that comes back with clear recommendations, then you have a pretty good case to take to the American public, right? To say, hey, look, um, I, I got 15 different people together. I put eight Republicans on it or, you know, seven Republicans on it. And the final vote was, you know, 13 to two to double the federal judiciary, right? To add uh, 400 new uh, United States district court judges, right? Which, which, by the way, um, any objective com- commission w- will come to that result, right? The, the, the federal judiciary is criminally overworked right now. It got stressed past the breaking point uh, thanks to COVID-19. Um, and, and that trickles down, right? Because you have a constitutional, if you're a criminal defendant, you have a constitutional right to a speedy trial. So that means Civil litigation already uh, overburdened and pushed out of the system um, gets put down to the absolute bottom of the pot. Like everybody knows if you if you if you were to say in a nonpartisan way, what what should we do uh, to fix the judiciary? Everybody left, right and center would say, give us more judges, give us more resources, give us more magistrate judges. Yeah. And now Bauer, the co-chair who you mentioned there briefly, uh, apparently is a proponent of term limits for federal judges. What do you think of that? I think that would be a terrible, terrible idea. Um, and I think of it because of the Mitch McConnell rule, right? Um, there is no way to enforce term limits among Supreme Court or Article Three judges. Right? It would be some kind of voluntary ethics system. And what that will do is reward the people who don't play by the rules and punish the people who do. Kind of like how we got rid of Katie Hill and Al Franken, but we still have Marjorie Taylor Greene. Wow. Okay, <laughs> put a pin in that that we've got to come back to. <laughs> 
Uh, all right. Well, um, we have to take a quick break, but um, we've got some more stuff that we want to go over and, and talk about. And, uh, you know, even my uh, my surprise FOIA information. Uh, I oh, can can't wait. Drop on you after the break. So everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's AG. Do you ever listen to the podcast and shout questions at your phone, hoping we can somehow hear you? Well, now we can. We're going live on the Stereo app, where you can ask your questions to us directly or make comments uh, or just say hi. So join us for the Cleanup on Aisle 45 after-party Q&A for uncensored opinions and exclusive content only available on the Stereo app. Uh, I love the Stereo app. I'm on the app talking all the time and listening to other shows. You can follow me at Allison Gill and get notified every time we go live. We'll take a deep dive into a variety of topics and interact directly with you. So use the link in the description of the show and then join us over on the Stereo app. The Stereo app has thousands of live social conversations with a wide range of genres for every interest, including news, comedy, sports, and more. You choose whether you get to be a co-host, participate as a guest, or simply listen in on exclusive conversations. Uh, We do this Andrew Torres and I for Clean Up on Aisle 45 every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. So don't miss our Clean Up on Aisle 45 after party over on the Stereo app. We'll see you there. And we're back, and I hadn't gotten to the really, really bad news yet. Oh. Yeah. Um, There's more bad news. Right. So here's the thing. You could assemble a commission. You could put unimpeachably conservative scholars on that commission, right? You could put originalists on that commission. You could put uh, Akhil Amar from Yale on there, for example. Um, you could put uh, honest, iconoclastic weirdos like my buddy Seth Barrett Tillman, um, who I would, I have no idea what he would do, but I know he would speak his mind, right? The, the problem that I have is Jack Goldsmith is being described as a conservative, and that's not sufficient. Jack Goldsmith is a 20-year member of the Federalist Society. He's a member of the organization that got us into this mess in the first place. In 2018, like all of the news outlets are saying, oh, well, you know, he wrote a pro-Kavanaugh piece. He didn't just write a pro-Kavanaugh piece. He wrote a piece that clapped and called out and said, hey, great job, Federalist Society, like 20 years of grassroots lobbying, and now we're in a position to radically overhaul the federal judiciary, right? This is it is inexplicable to me. Um, I mean, you know, this is not just inviting the fox into the hen house, right? I mean, it, 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 there are no analogies that can describe how angry I am at putting yeah. a member of the goddamn Federalist Society on your judicial committee because— And a huge vocal advocate yeah. of Brett Kavanaugh, like yeah. you said. Huge vocal, outspoken advocate yeah. of Brett Kavanaugh and his appointment to the Supreme and, Court. And, and, and look— um, the the only honest thing you could say about Brett Kavanaugh, uh, about his judicial philosophy, is what I said at the time, right? Which is, here is somebody who is unquestionably academically qualified to serve on the Supreme Court, and it is a litmus test of, is it permissible to have a judicial philosophy that is plainly at odds with both the Constitution and 90% of practicing lawyers left, right, and center, right? If we are going to reclaim what it used to mean to be a conservative jurist, it did not used to mean that 
precedent doesn't fucking matter at all. And oh, yeah, well, that case is three years old. So who cares? I thought it was wrongly decided. And it was plainly obvious to me that Brett Kavanaugh was coming onto the court to continue to give voice to the right wing activist wing that says the only thing that matters is what I in my head imagine that the founding fathers would have thought this meant 250 years ago, which, by the way, just means what you want the law to be. It is the most ridiculously activist philosophy possible. Um, It should be disqualifying to be on the Supreme Court. And Joe Biden knows this because Joe Biden in 1986 was the person that prevented Robert Bork from getting onto the Supreme Court and getting onto the Supreme Court for precisely this reason, right? Because Robert Bork refused to endorse the principle that the Constitution guaranteed an inherent right to privacy, even though it doesn't say you have a right to privacy in the text. Uh, and, uh, And Robert Bork refused to endorse Brown versus Board of Education because you can't, right? Like Brown versus Board of Education was wrongly decided to for these people. They won't tell you that in public because they watched Robert Bork go down in flames. Um, but it is the logical consequence of their philosophy, right? It's, well, he's the reason. I mean, he's the reason. Bork was the reason. We ask that now of every yeah. judge. How do you how do you feel about the decision of Brown? Where do you come down on Brown v. Board? And and that's why we have now we I feel like it wasn't until some idiot ate his deodorant stick that then you had to put on the outside of your deodorant for <laughs> external use only. Yeah. It wasn't until we found out that he doesn't come down on the side of Brown v. Board uh, that was it de- that it was decided correctly. Now we have to ask them all. Yep. And <laughs> and look. Let's unpack. Here's how that happened, right? Nina Totenberg, this is one of her very best interviews. This is with Antonin Scalia in the early 2000s, right? And she said, your view is that terms in the Constitution mean what they would have meant to an ordinary reader at the time that they were written, right? And Scalia said, yes. And so Nina Totenberg said, so let's take cruel and unusual punishment, right? That means what somebody thought was cruel and unusual punishment for 1789. And Scalia said, yep. And and Nina said, so like the fact that the rack and thumb screws and water torture were all in widespread use means that if a state wanted to bring those back, you'd be fine with it. And Scalia said, well, I don't think any state would want to bring those back. And Nina Totenberg, you know, God bless her journalistic heart, said, right, right, right. But if... And Scalia said, well, well, yeah. Right. And 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 look, that's the game. Right. That that that. And, and now let's apply that to Brown versus Board of Education. If right. Equal protection under the law means what it did to the average person reading it at the time that the 14th Amendment was passed. Right. The uh, immediate post-Civil War United States of America. It very clearly meant separate but equal, right? Zero people who voted for the 14th Amendment thought that it would mean that schools had to be integrated, right? Nobody thought that at the time. And so you cannot be an originalist. And yes, I know I'm eliding over some of the various flavors of originalism. We talk about this a lot on opening arguments. I'm not I'm not doing it now, right? This is this is all part of the game. You cannot ascribe to this philosophy and also say Brown v. Board of Education was rightfully decided without doing gymnastics that would make, you know, 
anyone blush. What I don't get is why they want to be originalists. Like what? So for what? Like what's the end game? What's the goal? So this was really well illustrated in the Supreme Court's uh, Janus decision, Janus versus Asked Me. Um, And that was a a kind of an obscure labor case. Not a lot of people saw it. Uh, But essentially it was whether in Michigan, um, a uh, public sector labor unions, which are the sole collective bargainer, right? So they represent both members and non-members. Um, we no longer have absolute closed shops, so they can't pass on their political costs to non-members. Uh, but they can pass on, unions could, could under uh, Michigan law, uh, pass on their non, their administrative costs to non-members because they negotiate on behalf of non-members, right? And for three decades, Republicans have been trying to change the law in Michigan, right? And they've lost. And you know why they've lost? Because that policy isn't fucking popular, right? Because people recognize that in public sector unions, right, just pay your, you know, if if you allow people to opt out, you will cripple public sector unions and government employees and teachers and everybody else will get fewer benefits, right? Uh, it will be worse for workers. And so they lost at the ballot box. And so what they did was said, oh, hey, we got a brand new super activist conservative Supreme Court. Let's litigate the exact same case that we lost on in 1972. It was a case called Abood, right? Ah, I know that one. Yeah. Same facts, exact same thing. And let's just go in and say, uh, that was a bad case and go the other way because you should because screw unions. And Alito wrote the opinion and Alito said the primary criterion that he uses in determining whether to apply stare decisis or not is whether the prior opinion upon which you seek to rely is right is rightly decided the quality of the reasoning. So in other words, what that means is if if prior precedent happens to agree with Sam Alito, then he's okay with respecting it. But if it doesn't, yeah, so what? Let's blaze a new trail because something being wrongly decided is the primary criterion, which is to say that stare decisis means nothing at all, right? You are not bound in any way. And is that sort of what they're, uh, is that sort of the way to go after Roe v. Wade? Yeah. Right. Because remember, Roe v. Wade still exists because of Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Right. This the the uh, it's a it's a super it's an excellent question. And and let's do 30 seconds on it really quickly. Um, Conservative activists tried this in the late 80s. Right. And they were teeing up abortion cases to try and say, well, look, we've had eight years of Ronald Reagan. He's appointed an awful lot of people to the bench. Um, The Supreme Court looks very different than it did in 1972. So uh, let's take a swing. And uh, in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, 1989 decision, um, uh, it, it, it. the, the the majority opinion was authored uh, by uh, Sandra Day O'Connor and Anthony Kennedy, um, and they both essentially said, look, if we were looking at Roe as a question of first impression, we would probably come out the other way. But we are guided by stare decisis, by the principle that 
this has been settled law for 20 years, and we don't disturb settled law lightly. And we look to a variety of factors. We look to have the conditions so changed as to render our prior opinion uh, a, a mistake. Um, has the prior opinion proved unworkable in practice, right? Like these are the kinds of things, right? Uh, again, w what the court said in uh, in Brown versus Board of Education, right? Like to come forward and go, yeah, boy, we sure screwed that up. We made a total mistake. We were 100% wrong. That used to be the test for stare decisis, right? It was, can you come forward and say, this has just been a, an intellectual and moral and practical and legal disaster. And if you can't, you, you got to stick with it because the law means something. And it doesn't just change every time you get some Yahoo president who gets to appoint a couple of Supreme Court justices. Now, speaking of presidents appointing people you don't like, let's go back <laughs> to this Goldsmith fellow yeah, for a let's second. Do that. Is, is this uh, particularly, it was specifically, was he chosen by Biden for this position? So... I don't I mean, all I have to go by are the news stories. But uh, and, and, and look, um, I would use the same analysis that I would use with Kavanaugh. Right. Like Goldsmith. Right. Harvard Law professor, guy who moderates a lot of different forums. He's clearly he's smarter than I am. No doubt about it. Right. You had him come on the show. Right. He would convince half our audience that originalism is fine. Right. But but the the, the problem is that. I don't see Jack Goldsmith signing off on a commission uh, that approves of expanding the federal judiciary. And we don't even know the rules of the commission either. If Yeah, we don't know any of that stuff yet. What we know we is— We don't know their mandate, but I'm just wondering if Biden appointed him or if Bauer appointed him. I couldn't quite get the clarity on that in any of the reporting. I, I don't—I'm I, I'm in, I'm in the same—I'm in the dark as much as you on that. Um, if anybody knows, hit us up yeah. <laughs> uh, on Twitter at aisle forty five pod a i s l e four five p o d. Let us know. Oh, that's that's also. Let me add a good way to get a hold of us uh, via Twitter. Um, you can also we read every uh, e every message that comes in at our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash aisle forty five pod, uh, or you can uh, send us a good old email at aisle forty five pod at gmail dot com. Wonderful. Now. Yeah. Are you done? Are you done kvetching about gold? I'm, 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 I'm trying. I'm going to bring my blood pressure down. Look, people have been, ask, have been asking, are we just going to cheerlead everything that Joe Biden does? And the no. answer is no. Yeah. No. And that's why I wanted to know if Biden did it or if Bauer did it. Yep. And I think it's really important that because you, you're right. No one is. No, it's like it seems like the reporting is absent on this. It's huge. Yep. yep. It's a huge story. If you want to get anything done. <laughs> and and there has to be a vote and everyone's got to vote. I don't understand why he would be on this commission. I Donald Trump did not put any members of the American Constitution Society on any judicial commissions that he had. So, you know. All right. So, um, so I've been waiting for question. this story. <laughs> <laughs> now, as you know, I used to work for the Department of Veterans Affairs. Uh, my podcast was then investigated. Um, I was denied representation during those investigatory fact-finding sessions um although there's some funny there's some funny parts to that story though andrew because when when they had me on the phone and had me looking up myself online and asking if it was me one of the videos they made me watch was me leading a three-part harmony of the word fucked <laughs> in a sold-out theater in minneapolis 
<laughs> about Manafort. And so, uh, it, you know, while I was terrified and being interrogated, I was, I was also, <laughs> <laughs> it's, is that it's, you? It's hard to be terrified when you're going, fucked, fucked, fucked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fucked. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> yeah, that's me. Yep. That's, yeah, that's the sold out theater. Three part fucked harmony. Yeah. You got me. Um, anyway. After some time, you can read my whole story if you want to. You can look me up, Allison Gill, at the Whistleblower News Network. Um, they did a, a piece on me in their uh, outstanding publication, a digital online publication. But uh, the thing is, is that I could, you know, I was, I never had, I mean, it all seems fairly obvious that they were removing me for my political uh, stuff. But I never really had that smoke and gun piece of which is still circumstantial evidence, but uh, that piece of evidence to to show that they had their eye on me and were they didn't like what I was doing politically. Well, a friend of mine was doing a FOIA request for his name popping up in different uh, information from the Department of Veterans Affairs and sent me part of uh, the FOIA request that had my name in it. I... <laughs> and it is... It's a briefing document okay, to okay. the secretary, uh-huh. to the secretary of the VA that says it's a, it's a long list. It's a, it's the social media takeaway. Um, it's like a brief one page document to brief the director on what's going on in social media. Um, so key points here in this briefing, top 10 tweets were on the storyline of the house Republicans walking out and refusing to vote on legislation regarding health care for female veterans. Um, and then they list a few people saying they tweeting that they, you know, the House Republicans don't care about their constituents. Uh, vote vets uh, tagged um, hashtag shameful. They go on about this for a while. The poison pill amendment. Um, the VA affairs Dems are in here. Criticized Republicans. Someone criticized Republicans for walking out, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You get down to the bottom here. Uh, they also mention red tea. Red T Raccoon, friend of ours, uh, and Travis Akers. And then they get down here and they say, oh, and by the way, Mueller, she wrote, posted about the claim that the Office of Accountability and Whistleblower Protection has been shielding Trump appointees from whistleblower and EEO complaints while retaliating against complainants. And then they list how many times it was retweeted and how many likes it had. Um, So, (laughs) and that was... Four months before I was removed from my job. Wow. Um, so I, I I take it you have uh, asked your counsel to draw up another FOIA request because um, I, I would sure. I mean, again, don't take legal advice from a podcast and you have plenty of fine lawyers working for you. You don't need another one. But um, I would kind of like to know what follow up to that email was right like if is this a is this a one-off right because look let's let's well that wasn't an email well yeah but it was the briefing right that was a briefing document yeah yeah um but i could imagine right if you're listing like all right here are a dozen things in social media that you know might look bad for us uh and you show up on one right that's a one-off then maybe that uh, I'm I'm doing my best to play devil's advocate here. Right? Why? I don't know yeah. why. But 
but I sure would want to know. Well, that's why that's why you follow it up with an additional request, right? What was the response to this briefing document? What other mentions of Mueller she wrote, right? In and Allison Gill and Mueller she wrote yep. in any emails between these top six advisors and you know my chain of command. Yep. Mm-hmm. Already on it. Oh, I I can't wait. Do you remember? Monica Goodling from the uh, George W. Bush administration. Mm -mm, Okay, so she was a one of these, you know, uh, has a has a cargo cult law degree from uh, Regent University. Right. Which um, I, I, I don't even know if they're accredited. Um, you know, by, by, I certainly don't think they're recognized by the American Bar Association. If you, if you look at their curricula, right, like ordinary law schools will, will say like, well, you've got to learn, you know, contracts and torts and constitutional law and uh, Regent requires you to learn apologetics and like the role of Christ in discipleship. And I it, it's, it's, it's nutbaggery, right? Like she, she was, uh, you know, graduated from Messiah College, went to Regent University. That's Pat Robertson's law school, right? Like it is Messiah College. Yeah, uh, I have no idea what the hell Messiah College is, but like I, I can guess, right? But Regent University was founded by Pat Robertson, right? Like, so, yeah, I thought you were joking. Oh no, uh, uh, I ne- Messiah College. I never okay. joke about the Messiah. <laughs> <You> should, uh, <laughs> um, and and uh, and so anyway, uh, story broke in. Uh, 2007, uh, that that essentially uh, this woman, uh, Monica Goodley, she was like 30 at the time, right? So she was, you know, out of a cargo cult law school, no ability to practice, um, was working uh, at the Department of Justice um, and basically was vetting U.S. attorneys for are you politically conservative enough? Right. Um, And so, you know, various uh, career professionals were being passed over uh, because Monica didn't think they were trustworthy because they were Democrats. Um, And that goes against internal DOJ policy, as you might imagine, um, uh, getting rid of uh, Allison Gill for her work on Mueller. She wrote so long as uh, you undertook the uh, appropriate steps not to violate the Hatch Act, and uh, which you and I have discussed on my show at at length how you did. Right. Um, It it retaliating against you for your political views is um it it's it, it does not it's not a protected political class right like uh starbucks can fire you uh as a barista if you wear your maga hat in and they tell you to take it off okay but the federal government it is widely considered sort of among uh civil service that you you don't take someone's political views into account in uh in in hiring firing promoting decisions right line officials sure right I, we're about to do a kiss them goodbye segment right like so so drawing that line can be tough but um but somebody in your position i i, I feel pretty strongly uh that 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 the va's internal policies would uh would prohibit them doing from what well, sure looks like they did <laughs> Yeah, so um, we're gonna get that um, oh. on that FOIA request and and see if if there's multiple instances and mentions. Yeah, I um, I can't wait. Thanks for sharing that. Mm, fun. 
Um, yeah, you, you know, forever I thought, ah, I'm, no one knows who I am. I'm not big enough for them to get rid of me for this. It must be something else. <laughs> uh, it can't be that. It can't be this podcast. And then, you know, me, then the Mick Mulvaney story comes out that he's got a trick to move people across country to get them to quit. And that's what they did to me, yeah. but I didn't. Uh, and so they tried that move with me. And so, you know, and then, you know, of course, we won the, the Webby the same year or the same month that I was told my job was moving across country. Uh, come back three months later, my podcast is being investigated. Um, I'm being investigated for all kinds of things, but they couldn't fire me for cause. They never found any cause to fire me. So they actually found a workaround and removed me for being medically unfit. Um, so what? Okay. Um <laughs> can, can 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 I say I I I think that wound up doing a lot of us a favor by uh by freeing up your time to do the uh investigative reporting and podcasting that um and not only that but I after not working for the government anymore I was not bound by the Hatch Act and yep. I could fundraise for campaigns <sighs> and we did Absolutely absolutely and um did. yeah and and look when, when you win by a point and a half uh every dollar that we raised out there for Asaf and warnock um you know you can you can say uh our, our listeners help make that happen and um and that's true so yeah 100% so uh it all turned out are you excited to talk to uh daniel goldman oh my god <laughs> <laughs> oh my god Andrew, that's <laughs> Daniel Goldman. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'll get your fainting couch for you. We'll be right back. Thank you. <laughs> After this message with Daniel Goldman. Stay with us. Hey, everybody. Cleanup on aisle 45 is brought to you by Stamps.com. Everyone dreams of what they would do if they had extra time and money. And let's face it, taking trips to the post office is not only dangerous because of COVID, but it's probably not how you want to spend your time and your money. That is why I recommend mailing and shipping online at Stamps.com. Stamps.com allows you to mail and ship anytime, anywhere, right from your computer at home, in your jammies if you want. You can send letters, ship packages, and pay a lot less with discounted rates from the Postal Service and UPS and more. Stamps.com has saved businesses thousands of hours and tons of money. With Stamps com you can get the services of the post office and ups all in one place plus big discounts on mailing and shipping rates i love the service using stamps.com has been such a smooth efficient experience stamps.com is a must-have for any business whether you're a small office sending out invoices an online seller shipping out orders or even a giant warehouse sending out thousands of packages per day stamps.com can handle it all with ease simply use your computer to print official u.s postage 24 7 for any letter any package any class of mail anywhere you want to send once your mail is ready you just schedule a pickup or drop it off it's that simple with Stamps.com, you can get discounts of up to 40% off post office rates and 62% off UPS shipping rates. Stamps.com is a no-brainer, saving you time and money. It's no wonder nearly 1 million small businesses already use Stamps.com. So stop wasting time at the post office and go to Stamps.com instead. There's no risk, and with our promo code CLEANUP, that's one word, CLEANUP, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage, and they'll send you a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com, click on that microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in cleanup all one word that's stamps.com promo code cleanup stamps.com never go to the post office again and joining us for the interview is the lead attorney in the first impeachment trial daniel goldman daniel thank you so much for joining us thanks so much for having me yeah um you did a fantastic interview with ag on the daily beans a couple of days ago and i i have to tell you the thing that struck me the most about that was your um, 
dare I say certainty uh, from a political standpoint that um, that the uh, House impeachment managers would would not be interested in calling witnesses. Um, and and I want to drill down on that a little bit, because um, as a as a trial attorney myself, right, like <laughs> I when I saw the 55 45 vote uh, over jurisdiction, I thought, OK, well, well, great. Right. Like let let Rand Paul crow about that or whatever. But that means we have the votes uh, for witnesses. And certainly, you know, someone like a Brad Raffensperger seems like, you know, that would be really an ideal person to kind of put up, um, you know, and and receive their testimony and, you know, have him talk about how he he felt like he had to surreptitiously record the president of the United States to avoid being, you know, shaken down and lied about it later. Um, so I, I still think that, they're not interested at all in witnesses and and talk to me about how you would approach that. So I, I didn't mean to say that the managers would not be interested in witnesses. I'm sh- I'm sure they are. Mm-hmm. Um, I, the, the decision uh, for whether decision of whether or not there are witnesses is made by the senators. And what I was talking about was sort of the odd confluence of both parties wanting this to move quickly. Um, And, you know, there is a, there's a scenario where you would agree on witnesses, then the, the managers and the president's lawyers would go off and do an investigation of some sort with witnesses and do depositions. And then they'd come back to, the senators to to deal with it. And I could see something like that in theory happening. But the problem, I think, for both parties is that just keeps this thing alive. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a real desire, certainly from President Biden and and the White House, but to, to move past Donald Trump and to focus on what's going on in our country with COVID and other, and the economy and all sorts of, you know, HR1, S1, voting rights. I mean, there's there are so many legislative um, priorities that the administration has. And in Washington, you, you just, you can't do too many things at once. Even as much as people talk about it, um, it doesn't happen that way in my, my experience. So, I think the impeachment managers would want witnesses. You know, there's there's a lot about what Donald Trump knew and when he knew it that we still don't really know. Um, I, I think, yeah, certainly you could have Brad Raffensperger. You could, you know, bring in Jeffrey Rosen. You could. I'd love to talk to Mark Meadows. I'd love to talk to <laughs> Dan Scavino. You know, there are a lot. I mean, I'd I'd want to bring in some of the. Um, Capitol Police victims the, yeah, and the police. have them. I mean, that as a prosecutor, the most compelling testimony is victim testimony. So, you know, if this were a court of law and this were a trial, I'd have a whole lineup of witnesses. And I'm sure all the impeachment managers who are, are lawyers and litigators themselves would love to do that. Um, but I just think the practical reality is, and, and Senator Schumer has kind of foreshadowed this, is the Democrats want to move past this to focus on the the fact that they have a majority and in all three relevant entities that can pass legislation. And they want to move on to the things that are really affecting the American public. And that's no longer Donald Trump. So 
Uh, and the Republicans, this is, as someone said uh, last week, you know, I think this trial is like a root canal for them. So mm-hmm. um, they are, they want it to be over as soon as possible. So it's really a function of just the practical realities of, of where we are that I think that in order to get this done in a week, you just can't have witnesses. Uh, and that's why I love it is because it's a root canal for the Republicans. But also, <laughs> you know, like my whole, you know, my whole life right now is rooted in accountability for this president and i don't even have a taste for how a witness path might go like it just would keep adding on and adding on but i feel like you could get you know like you said you do depositions behind closed doors you bring out the witnesses you want to bring out it could be limited you could limit it to as andrew said and as as you and i talked about last week daniel that you know more along the lines of the election interference and the the you know election officials in georgia and raffensperger etc but uh, you know, there there are honestly people who want to hear from for, like you said, the the couple of police officers that were hit, beaten, hurt, lost their eye, et cetera, because that kind of testimony is is got a, has a huge impact. But I think we're also kind of already on the road where there won't be a conviction and they're just trying to do it to do it. And like like we talked about again last week, I think we're kind of relying on some sort of a commission or special counsel or Senate or con- congressional investigations to actually get everything out in the open and the truth to like air it out and take time to do it. Yeah, there are lots of ways to get accountability other than through impeachment. And there are better ways to actually get to the facts um, than, you know, a Senate trial uh, for impeachment. And so I, I I don't think that the fact that there will be no witnesses means that there will not be a deep dive into everything that happened, everything the president knew, what the the security deficiencies came from, um, his efforts. Yeah, especially this new memo that we got this weekend, dated January 4th from Chris Miller, because, you know, we talked about <laughs> the fact that all this evidence now has time to come out between now and February 9th. But that that memo disarming basically basically the national guard was pretty damning yeah uh and and i'm sure there's more to it and i'm sure there's more conversations involved i i don't you know these these people are no longer um they're no longer government employees they their protections are are far more limited um so you know there's there's a there are pathways to getting to the bottom of it um and by the way as an aside, you know, it's a Biden administration, and this is all administration materials. There are emails that are going to be within the control of now the Biden administration, not the Trump administration. So that, that's an excellent point. Yeah. And anything they tried to delete or erase, which I'm sure they tried, is actually going to leave a really bright, giant breadcrumb trail. You can't just go <laughs> in and, uh, you know, as much as you would like to remove things from the code word NICE system. You can't just do that and have it disappear, right? Correct. Yeah. Well, Daniel, something you said that really resonated with me was that um, if this impeachment, if the trial in the Senate had been held on January 7th, then there's no doubt that that Donald Trump would have been, uh, you know, would have been convicted. Right. And um, but that 
as time recedes. Sadly, I think there still is some doubt, but yes, much, <laughs> much more likely. Uh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Let me not put words in your <laughs> mouth, right? Uh, what, a, what a time we live in. Um, but, but, but that, uh, I mean, the real point was that sort of uh, it, it, the emotion of, um, you know, sort of the, the raw shock of, of that uh, insurrection on January 6th f- fades for reasons that, uh, you know, I think sociologists will be puzzling over for decades, you know, but more qualified than us. Um, I think this ties in with the witnesses in 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 the the answer that you gave. Right. Which is ordinarily right. The way in which you would deal with that emotional distance is by having the testimony of victims. Right. Um, if if your view is that um, the, the political reality means that that we're not going to get that. Um, it seems like that puts kind of a tremendous onus on the House managers to write one hell of an opening brief and, uh, you know, sort of opening presentation. Right. And the video that they're going to present. <laughs> yeah. Like, what what would you what would you do to sort of remind people like, hey, we we have a president who tried to overthrow democracy as we know it. And let's not let him walk. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's not going to be in the opening brief. I can tell you that much. That's not going to move the public. Uh, It'll probably get little attention as ours did last time. But there is a very I I read yours last time. (laughs) But there's a a, there's a very powerful um, presentation that I'm certain is in the works that will merge all of the video and the tweets and the statements, um, both of the president, of his surrogates and advocates and agents, and all of these, you know, protesters and insurrectionists on social media. And you can put together a very emotional and powerful presentation that brings you back to the heart of uh, the emotional center of what happened that day. And we've seen a lot of the video, but my understanding is that they're working on putting together, gathering additional video. Um, so I, I, I would expect that, you know, similar to how we put together an audiovisual presentation the last time, um, but that was primarily with witness testimony. What you're going to see this time are the perpetrators of the the misconduct in sort of real time. And you'll see, you know, ranging back from the president's comments about how there are good people on both sides in the Charlottesville thing when there was violence there and how at the campaign rallies that the president had, how he would, you know, threaten violence against people who were protesting there. And then all of his statements and tweets about the election, just you, you start uh, rig- the election being fraudulent and, and rigged, all of the nonsense. You can really piece together quite a powerful narrative that leads you up to January 6th. And then you'll get the protesters on Parler and other social media sites talking about how the president was sending them to storm the Capitol and things like that. And then you'll get the video within the Capitol that was so harrowing and so remarkable on the day of you'll be able to recreate the scene pretty well, I think. I think they went with the law firm uh, to put that video together, though, instead of a production company or... Instead of the PR. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, which I I was personally, as a 
PR person myself, I was upset about. I was like, "Come on, Hollywood can do this for you. <laughs> Let them have it." But no, I'm sure I'm sure they're using the same <laughs> the same company that uh, the, 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 it's through a law firm, but it's a uh, it's it's not an entertainment company, but it's someone. So it's a it's an entity that does a lot of uh, video presentations. A good. Because I'm hoping that okay. they're going through Good. the law firm who has all of the people on, like as long as Scorsese's on it, and fun. No, but I, it's important, right? It's important to 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 put this together properly. And I was I was like, oh come on, but I like the fact that I guess they're they they're taking the cover and doing it properly, even though there could be any number of people advising on on the way that that gets put together, but. It, it it will take without that witness testimony, without the 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 cop who was smashed in the door, without um, the that other police officer, uh, the the beardy guy with the neck tattoo. I can't remember his name. Uh, without their testimony, it's going to be hard to to sort of get that visceral emotional reaction. But honestly, and I hate to sound cynical with Republicans, none of that matters. <laughs> Well, look, I, I don't know that it, uh, you know, I don't know that it's going to carry the day. And I, but I do think it's important to remember it's, it's not just the Senate that this is for. This is also for the American public, and right. and how they hold the Senate accountable for how they vote. And, and ultimately, I mean, that's why what Donald Trump did was so scary. Is that the ultimate source of accountability in our country is the voting, is the elections. And for him to get so close to stealing the election and trying to do it violently through a self-coup, as Fiona Hill described it, is really uh, as as close to losing our democracy as we've gotten in 250 years. At the end of the day, you know, I, I call me a little bit of a pessimist. So I think that it's um, ultimately really important to get the message across and resonate with the public uh, who may be just catching bits and pieces of the trial as well, that uh, how how scary, how close it was that we got to a scenario where we were potentially going to lose um, to to lose the, our democracy as we know it. And, um, you know, hopefully that that resonates to some degree. Yeah. And I hate to think what we would have done had that been at all uh, remotely successful. Um, what it would have looked like, because I think we're seeing it play out right now with Navalny in in Russia. What's going on with Alexei Navalny and... or Myanmar? Right. Yeah. I mean, Myanmar, th where mm -hmm. they're basically saying they used the Donald Trump playbook of saying that the election was rigged and the military took over. It's you know what one thing we don't talk enough about and spending some time on the intelligence committee, I I, I was uh, introduced to this a lot more than I had ever been previously the the representation of of democratic values that american um state department diplomats and others around the world carry is so important to the international order and when donald trump tries to do something like this it doesn't just jeopardize our own democracy it jeopardizes our standing around the world and that is scary because the united states is the greatest force for democracy around the world and if we have no credibility then we run into real issues. Yeah, it's like you don't have your protective big sister there anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, 
I I was struck by I, I think a lot of the heavy lifting that really got us through what Trump did uh, during the election um, was the fact that um, that that people and in particular I'm thinking uh, law professor Neil H Buchanan and um, uh, and a couple of others who wrote about the redshift phenomenon uh, back in May and June and said look you talk about the red mirage the yeah yeah, yeah. that said look. Um, this the, with uh, with the with the dynamic the way it is, here's how votes are going to come in. And mathematically, right, Democrats are going to be way behind because in these uh, purple states with um, Republican state legislatures, uh, they right. are it's the in-person voting. Yeah. They are prohibited from counting early votes. That's right. They count the in-person votes and Republicans made it so you can't count mail-in ballots until after midnight the next day. Right. And so you're, you're going to have that red mirage and it's going to shift blue over the course of the evening. And I think the fact that all of our networks were prepared with that, right, that we talked about that out in the open. Yeah, we did. Really helped, like, diffuse that narrative uh, going in. So I, I guess my question is, you know, what 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 can we be talking about that is sort of the equivalent that helps, you know, people get through, uh, you know, the 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 impeachment uh, that arms them in the same way? Well, I think what we should be talking about is H.R. Uh, one and mm-hmm. S one, um, which is which are the two priority bills of the House and the Senate that will completely revamp uh, voting in this country, automatic voter registration, um, an assortment of different um, of, of different measures that make voting accessible and easy easier for everyone, um, and ultimately, you know, the I think the response to you know Donald Trump is the best response to Trump and Trumpism is to activate pe- the American populace and get people to vote. At the end of the day, we all have to stand up for what the values we believe this country represents. And if and that, the way to do that is at the ballot box. So, you know, I'm not sure the impeachment trial is going to um, be satisfying to a lot of people. I think it is still very important for a couple, for primarily for deterrence reasons. I think in some ways it's accountability, yes. I mean, Donald Trump should be convicted and the message should go to him and to everyone who would ever contemplate such behavior in the future that if you do something like that, you will be impeached and removed immediately, whether it's at the end of your term or the middle of your term or at any point. Um, We need to send that message to future uh, elected leaders, but also to the world that that is we we do not accept here, that. Here. Yeah. <laughs> so there is a deterrent value to 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 going forward with this. Um, I think the disqualification personally, and this is just my personal opinion, I think the disqualification aspect of it is less important um, because, frankly, I would. I would love for, as a Democrat, I would love for Donald Trump to run in 2024. Oh, oh and, and be, and um, I'm sorry, but he'll be the PP candidate, which is hilarious to me uh, because of the Patriot Party. But no, you know, I, I'm, I'm totally, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. And, and they're, you know, as I always say, GOP will eat itself. They're like a circular firing squad. They're going to take each other down. But um, I would, what do you think of the, the Tim Kaine, Susan Collins proposal uh, which is the resolution under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to bar him from running from office again and censure him. Now, they want to do it in lieu of a Senate trial. I want to do it 
also can't why like why can't well, we do it as well at this point the trial has begun and there needs to be a a trial uh so it's not going to be in lieu of it um I, i'm i'm personally not a fan i think censure doesn't do anything it doesn't deter donald trump it doesn't deter people in the future it's less severe than impeachment to me it's kind of a cop-out um, I understand the sentiment about feeling like this is a, a futile process, practically speaking, and we've got a lot of more significant priorities to focus on. I, I certainly get that sentiment. Um, but I do think that, you know, one of the I, I think one of the problems with the Trump era is the the vision um, into the future of everyone on in Washington, D.C., has reduced itself to, you know, 24 hours as opposed to years and years. Right. And this is really for historical purposes, in my view. This is looking ahead, you know, from the from the Republican Party, I think they should be looking at this the same way, not just what is, you know, is he going to support a primary opponent next week? It's what's the right thing to do for our country right. going forward and recognize that we have plenty of time. You know, and everyone says, oh, it's it's in the bag, et cetera. But like, why not put the spotlight on that? Why not put the spotlight on the fact that the Republicans aren't voting for this? Let's make that a thing. You know, I mean, I'm sure that will I'm sure that's part of it, although I don't think that's the the motivating part of it. But that is certainly why 45 Republicans supported the flimsy legal basis to to dismiss the the case is that they don't want to have to deal with the substance of the charge and they don't want to have to be on record to either vote, um, you know, to condone this activity or vote against Donald Trump. So that's something they would like to avoid having to do, which is, I think, why we're seeing this. But I don't think this Article 14, Section 3 um, pathway is as simple as, uh, you know, as Tim Kaine has has outlined it. I think you would need to have some sort of due process. And it talks about, you know, rebellion. Uh, what's the other? Uh, blanking on the other word, but it's insurrection or rebellion, yeah. I think it is. Um and you'd have to prove that Donald Trump engaged in insurrection or rebellion in order to expel or to disqualify him uh, from from the future. And and I think that's that's a higher a higher charge to prove than what they have right now. Yeah, at least you get to the heart of it instead of uh, well, we just don't think you can impeach a past president. <laughs> In the first impeachment, were were you surprised um, the the way I was that? Uh, uh, that that no Republicans uh, won, but but that essentially uh, the Republican Party didn't want to hear from John Bolton. Did did you think you had a chance at 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 sort of getting him on as a witness, or uh, how did that how did that unfold? Yes, um, so we certainly had targeted him as a as a primary as our number one mm-hmm. witness that we wanted. We had a sense that he was privy to additional conversations that would have been relevant um, to to the timeline and that he carried some gravitas as the national security advisor and as a longtime Republican. Um, so on the Sunday before the trial began was when his manuscript was released by the New York Times, or at least excerpts of it. And the schedule for the Senate trial uh, up until that point was significantly had been significantly expedited 
And so there was going to be a vote on witnesses. This was a Sunday afternoon. I believe the vote on the witnesses was either going to be Tuesday or Wednesday. And Mitch McConnell immediately delayed things <laughs> so that the vote was not until Friday. And he clearly did that because he wanted time to let this sit and simmer. And he wanted to whip the caucus um, in order to uh, to oppose having any uh, additional witnesses. You know, that was a very different time period, right? We were entering the election season I think the Republicans had accepted, the Republican senators had accepted that their fortunes are going to sort of rise and fall on Donald Trump at that point. And to, you know, prolong this and to make it worse for themselves and for him, um, if they were ultimately not going to convict him, did nothing for them. There's no there's no honor in doing, you know, the procedurally right thing if ultimately you were going to quit anyway. And it just would it would not help. So. There was a faint glimmer of hope when that uh, story broke, but it, we, it quickly dissipated as uh, when the schedule was moved. Well, thank you um, so much for joining us today. Uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, I hope that uh, we'll we'll get to speak to you again soon, maybe after the impeachment trial takes place. But everyone, House Counsel for Democrats in the first impeachment, Daniel Goldman. And if you ever teach a law class, let me know. I want to audit. <laughs> Two votes. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Daniel, thank you so much for coming on. All right. Take care. So that was a wonderful interview. What an incredibly just brilliant man. Right. Absolutely wonderful to talk to him. All right. I mean, don't 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 go interviewing replacement co-hosts yet. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. I don't feel I don't feel that inferior. I'm fine. Oh my goodness. <laughs> you will still get your bowl of whiskey and fish head tonight, okay? All right, thank you. You're welcome. Now uh, let's talk about who's getting the boot. <laughs> I love this segment. This is a way, even with my blood pressure being elevated from uh, uh, Goldsmith. Jack Goldsmith, we we at least know we've got our goodbye to you segment. So, uh, Allison, we discussed on our last episode how on January 20th, 2021, President Joe Biden fired Peter Robb, the Trump-appointed general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board, after Robb refused a request from the new administration to resign. Well, one day later, Biden made the same take-it-or-leave-it deal for Robb's replacement Deputy General Counsel Alice Stock uh, said, hey, let us know by 5 p.m., um, uh, if you're in or out or you're going to be dismissed, she was fired at 5.01 p.m. Uh, on January 21st, 2021. So, uh, I love a man that can keep his word. Bye-bye. <laughs> How about Victoria Coates? So we, we talked about some of the uh, folks in the propaganda machine last week. Um, Victoria Coates was hired as the president of the government-funded Middle East Broadcasting Networks. Um, she was fired with two years left on her contract. And when Coates said, hey, um, my contract says you cannot remove me unless I'm convicted of a felony. The Biden administration responded by cutting off her email. <laughs> so good for it's you, sort of, Joe. <laughs> it's sort of like, uh, well, uh, he, yeah, he, you know, we fixed the glitch. Yeah. <laughs> he won't be getting a paycheck anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Milton Waddams. Right. Well, yeah. apparently something, it kept him on the payroll after he was laid off five years yeah. ago. So we just went ahead and fixed the glitch. I'm, 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 I'm going to burn the building down. <laughs> <laughs> so goodbye to Coates. Um, Bye-bye. 
Uh, I love this one. Uh, Biden fired the White House physician. Do you remember that Baghdad Bob wannabe? His name was Dr. Sean P. Connolly. And he was the one, yeah, that, that came out and told us that, you know, overweight septuagenarian Donald Trump was experiencing only mild COVID symptoms. Yeah. Oh, was he He was the doctor giving us the BS updates while, while when he was at Walter Reed with COVID? Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. guy. Right. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. Goodbye to that guy. Goodbye. I, I, I literally do not know a thing about his replacement. His replacement is uh, Biden's personal physician, Dr. Kevin O'Connor. And I don't care. Kevin O'Connor, you could be a chiropractor and I'd still be waving bye-bye to Connolly. So. <laughs> um, oh, uh, Biden has also shown Kathy Nubel Kovarik, a former staffer to Chuck Grassley, the door. Um, she was chief of staff at Immigrations and Customs Enforcement. Um, she'll be replaced by Timothy Perry, who was a former official with the California Governor's Office of Emergency Services. So I think you could see maybe a, a transition at ICE there. So bye bye, Kathy. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> and finally, uh, the way you know this segment is not going anywhere for a while. Biden, uh, we talked about this last week, is committed to really rooting out the Trump appointees who have burrowed their way into civil service jobs. Um, likely next up on the chopping block are two Trump hacks at the Department of Energy, uh, Michael Brown and Kyle Nicholas. Um, they were recently added to high profile international positions at the DOE, replacing, you know, career civil servant types. Uh, Brown is, of course, a he's in the Department of Energy, so he's a former what kind of executive? Oil? Yeah, coal. Yeah, right. Oh, coal. Okay. <laughs> uh, he was the national political director for fossil fuels for Ben Carson's 2016 campaign for president. Oh, so, yeah. well, Michael Brown, <laughs> I can't wait for you to go bye bye. Yeah. And uh, Nicholas was a political appointee who served as an advisor in the Energy Department's International Affairs offices under Trump. And um, hopefully next week we'll be waving bye bye to him as well. Yeah, that would be great. I would appreciate that. I would also like to know which part didn't they understand, the buh or the buh. <laughs> oh, excellent callback. Ah, that feels good. Oh, that feels good. Mm. I'm just sort of basking. Yeah, in, I'm, in, in, I'm still <laughs> in the bye bye segment. <laughs> I I needed I needed a come down, you know, a uh, a, a cigar after our interview segment. So uh, <laughs> I figured this was a good way to do it. Anything else you want to add? Yeah, there was a, a bit in the New York Times um, about saying here, basically, I'm quoting now, uh, when Biden swore in a batch of recruits for his new administration in a teleconference ceremony last week, it looked like the country's biggest Zoom call. In fact, Mr. Biden was installing roughly 1,000 high-level officials in about a quarter of all the available political appointee jobs in the federal government. At the same time, far less visible transition was taking place as you just went over the quiet dismissal of holdovers from the Trump administration who've been asked to clean out their offices immediately, whatever the eventual legal consequences. (laughs) I just like that paragraph. I love that, too. I mean, I I have uh, mentioned to you um, the the degree to which uh, the Michael Lewis book, The Fifth Risk, really struck me that, you know, this administration was going to have to hit the ground running to do the really unsexy infrastructure work of, you know, 
building everything back up again after, you know, people have been trying to wreck it for four years. And um, and, and it's really encouraging to see that they came prepared to do that um, down to the level of staffing. Right. And, you know, and if if uh, a, a, a random department has to fend off a wrongful termination suit, right, like that their position is, OK, yeah, well, we'll. We'll deal with that when the time comes, but we we do not want these moles sticking around and, you know, good for them. Mm, Yeah, indeed. Well, everybody, this has been an excellent, excellent discussion. I'm so grateful we got to talk to Daniel Goldman. It's been wonderful talking to you. I'm super sorry about Goldsmith. Uh, I know you're really upset about that. So am I. It sucks. Uh, it sucks a lot, and I'm glad that we got to talk about it on the show because I don't see that really being reported anywhere else. Watch, it'll show up on Matto tonight. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, you know, I think it's very important, and it was worth uh, worth the discussion. So I appreciate that. Do you have any final thoughts before we get out of here? No, let's just keep holding their feet to the fire. You know, left, left, right, our guys, their guys. That's the point of the show. So. Mm. And don't forget, on Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific and 8 p.m. Eastern, join us on Stereo Live. We'll be there. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. All right. That's it. I'm signing off. I've been A.G. I'm A.T. Good night. Cleanup on Aisle 45 is written and produced by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres and is engineered and edited by Mackenzie Mazzell and Starburns Audio. Fact-checking and research by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres with quality assurance and media by Muller She Wrote, LLC. Branding design and logo by Starburns Audio and Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. And our copy is written by Jesse Egan. Our music is written and recorded by Adam Orr and Christopher Hoffey and our opening sequence is designed by Allison Gill and mixed by Mackenzie Mazzell and Starburns Audio. Follow us on Twitter at Aisle45Pod and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, don't miss our cleanup on aisle 45 after party over on the stereo app. We'll be going live every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. And we want to hear from you. Our most recent stereo show went a little bit like this. Yeah, but like, for example, they're trying to take away his uh, he, he could still get the president's daily brief uh, or at least get uh, not the PDB, but uh, something like it. Intelligence updates. Uh, and yeah. they want to take that away from him, too. Again, something they would just yep. be voted on. And, 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 and again, there's two levels of that, right? So there's an executive agency determination and it, it's all like, you can always change the law and, you know, you don't need to worry about it being a bill of attainder, right? Like, uh, which is a law targeting a specific person. You could always just like pass it with, you know, sufficient specificity that we know who it is and it would not be invalidated that it only applies to like one former president because there are only four former presidents, right? Like, you know, mm-hmm. so lots of things will only apply, right? You could say, you know, to, you know, any president, any former president, uh, you know, uh, of the last 10 years or whatever, right? Like, I mean, there, there are lots of ways, uh, yeah. you know, to, uh, you know, to, to, to make that, to, to narrowly tailor the bill. Um, I am really encouraged. We talk about this on tomorrow's uh, uh, cleanup um, in the bye-bye section. Um, the the Biden administration's approach to firing uh, partisan Trumpkins who have burrowed their way into the civil service <laughs> yeah, uh, is to say, "Yeah, we're going to fire you first and like let the courts sort it out later." And like, yeah, and um, it's almost as if to say, "Hey, if if you sue us for the max three hundred thousand dollars and win, that's cost of doing business. You're fired." Yep, exactly right. And and, and so I, I find that very encouraging. It. Yep. Yeah, so do I think that uh, you know 
various Biden uh, executive agencies are going to look at like Trump requests for, you know, travel and extended secrets and just be like, you know, fuck you. No, we're not going to do that. Yeah, I, I, I feel very strongly that that's consistent with what they've done so far. Stereo is the app for live social conversations, and we want to talk directly with you, our listeners, so you can join our show, ask questions about news, politics, the law, justice, anything. And you can share your experiences and opinions, too. So we want to hear everything from you. So download and join us live this week. Download the free Stereo app. The link to our show in the description will be there. And join us over on the Stereo app. See you then. They might be giants that have been on the road for too long. Too long. And they might be giants aren't even sorry. Not even sorry. And audiences like the shows too much. Too much. And now they might be giants are playing their breakthrough album Flood. All of it. And they still have time for other songs. They're fooling around. Who can stop They Might Be Giants and their liberal rock agenda? Who? No one. This ad was paid for with somebody else's money. Hi, I'm Liz Winstead. I'm Moji Alawode Al. And we're the hosts of Feminist Buzzkills, the only weekly podcast that helps you navigate the post-row hellscape. We dissect all the news from that sketchy intersection of abortion and misogyny with our guests, the abortion providers and activists working on the ground. Plus, we have amazing comedians to help us laugh through the rage. Feminist Buzzkills drops Fridays wherever you get your pod fix. Listen and subscribe, because when BS is popping, we pop off.